back to the Curious Investor Podcast. My name is Paulina Marquez. I'm here with my co-host, Philip Costa. And today we have a special guest all the way from Ohio. We got Ian Tavardovskaya. Is that correct? You got it. <laughs> I, know, I, know that's a t- I know people probably uh, butcher that all the time, but thank you so much for, for joining us today. And uh, uh, real quick, if you don't mind giving a little bit of an introduction about yourself so that people know uh, exactly who you are and what you do. Yeah, I'm a full-time real estate investor, as well as have a couple small businesses that focus on real estate related services. I'm in Cleveland, Ohio. I previously in, invested as well when I lived in Columbus, Ohio and Columbus's market. I've sold almost all of those off. I have a few rentals in central Ohio, but it's mostly um, Cleveland, Ohio based uh, at this point. Uh, I was a professional property manager at apartment communities and, and professional maintenance um, tech at apartment communities as well. It's kind of where I learned a lot of like the on the grounds day-to-day knowledge that I kind of implement now and build my portfolio while working up there and then left that job and just pursuing this full-time. So what are those some of those side businesses that you do that are real estate related? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'll third-party manage other people's rentals, so providing property management. Um, I'll do maintenance as well. So I got a couple guys that work for me to work on both my rentals, other clients, mm. as well as other people that would just hire out, um, you know, maintenance type work. I just ordered and have um, some dump trailers coming. So basically be like dumping and hauling for, you know, like a tenant leaves, you have a trash out, you have a renovation, you need a dumpster. Um, have that kind of integrated in there as well. Cool. Yeah, that's awesome. So like it kind of runs in, into the into your business as well. So uh, you utilize that for you, for yourself. Um, so what has been uh, your first interaction with money? If it was in your family or in school, talking to someone, what was your first interaction with that? Yeah, so that's a really good question. I think really my first interaction, I guess, with money would be without money, but it would be like understanding like a way money was taught. So my dad would teach us with Pokemon cards. Like when we were little, because I got two brothers, so, you know, first, second grade, we were really big into Pokemon cards and like kids would trade them at school. So like, obviously there's like a rating system for Pokemon cards. Like some are rare, more rare than others. But like when you're a little kid, like you just think some things look cooler than others. Like the picture looks cool, Mm -hmm. this looks cool, this looks cool. So like really understanding like value, what things are worth and being able to trade them. Like my dad, like really got into like Pokemon with us and would play the cards with us and stuff. And he would like really teach the value of this is what this is worth, this is what this is worth. So then conversely, then when we started getting an allowance, like an allowance like would always be referred back to or money would always be referred back to as Pokemon cards. Like even today, like I'll be talking to my dad about something. He'd be like, well, the Charizard is worth more than da-da-da-da-da, right? And like, so <laughs> that's like a way, like a metaphor for my family, if you will, that like we kind of came to understand like money and value and how things have like more worth or more worth than others yeah it's interesting you uh your father's relating money to a game because a lot of times that's what it is you want to accumulate more so then you have more assets or more resources to to expand or grow yourself yeah absolutely it also you know like it's a great metaphor for a uh like for a first grader right it's like something that a person is interested in and so I think that's some of the challenges that a lot of people have when they're first trying to figure out money is like they're coming from a, a state of mind, right? Like my state of mind at the time was trading, you know, cards on a playground. 
So right, it's like teaching value through that. You know, we often have to kind of do the same thing, and that's why we gravitate towards certain people that teach it or talk about it, you know, and other people that don't is because they put it into a subject matter that we can kind of like digest, regurgitate, and like think within our frame of mind. Oh, yeah, for sure. And so like, like going back to the Pokemon thing, so like how would you like treat it like money? Like were there certain cars that are like, this is less valuable, this is more valuable? And you're talking about visual, like you're saying the nice, cool looking cars are worth more money. Is that, is that like what it, is that what you were doing? Well, like the car, cards would match, cards naturally have based on like their rarity, like a higher rating of value. So like, yes. Okay. I mean, okay. Right. Like, I mean, if, if the produce, I don't even know who produces Pokemon, but like whoever makes Pokemon cards, if they only produce like a hundred of one card, like that card is going to be like on its face, just more rare by basic supply and demand. Yeah. Right. And so like, even if you just think of those economic terms though, right, like that's really what my dad was trying to teach me, right? Is like, mm-hmm. there's less Charizards. Charizards are more rare and worth more. Like, if you go out and you just trade the card that they only produced 100 of for one card that they produced 100,000 of, like, you're, you're making a bad deal. You're negotiating poorly. You're spending or trading what is a valuable asset for something that's less valuable. So it's kind of like understanding and interpreting that as a way to then, you know, but... I think the bigger metaphor is that like for my interaction with money, that is like my dad and my parents are teaching me about money. It's like the Pokemon cards become the reference. Cause like I'd always heard that growing up. Right. So it's like, well, you know, maybe you don't want to do that. Charizard's worth more. And like, that's yeah. just became like a, fr- a frame of reference or conversation for like, you know, understanding how businesses grow, how you make and spend money, how you oh, know, yeah. different things have more value than, than others. So you brought that into your, obviously, into your real estate life. So w- before even real estate, because a lot of people don't start investing through real estate. Sometimes, like, for example, I, I started trading stocks, right? Like, yeah. I started, like, I threw in a couple money into Robinhood because Robinhood was a big thing. Like, when it first came out, a lot of people were just, throw, like, didn't know much about stocks, and they started trading here and there. Yeah. Um, uh, what was your start? Like, how did you begin investing your money uh, like before, because I'm, I'm, I don't know if it was real estate. I don't know if it was through stocks or something else. So what was your first interaction with investing? Yeah, so I, I started with stocks um, in high school. I took like a, like a personal finance class. I think that was get around, you know, it was, and part of that was stock trading and, and things like that. So that's, that's kind of where I started with, um, started with kind of boring stocks. But I, I lucked out because I started investing in like 2010. So like Ford was like my biggest position when this stock was like $2.20 because they had just refinanced off of bankruptcy. So like I saw success more so on like market conditions and luck more so than knowledge. Um, And and I didn't really like continuously do it. Like I took some money that I made from, you know, working, working summer jobs. I put it in the stock market. I kind of left it alone. It went up over time. Uh, college, I read a bunch of books on investing and on real estate, and um, there was a book, Small or Big Money with Small Apartments. I forget the author, but that, like, I read that book, and it had a, a line inside of it. It's like, people say they want to be financially free, and so I just tell them, go buy 30 units. Go buy a 30-unit apartment community. Like, if you made $600 a month on 30 units, that's $18,000 a year. You live on half of that, you collect $9,000 uh, or $18,000 a month, I'm sorry. Live on half of that, that's $9,000 a month. Like most people, most families can survive 
on $9,000 a month. Oh, yeah. And I was like, oh, that's it. That's just clearly what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. But I'm going to go to law school first. I'm going to put this down. So uh, I went to law school. I sold the stocks to pay for part of law school. Got halfway through law school. And I'm like, I got to revisit this real estate thing. And um, so I, I took a couple classes, like, uh, well, not classes, but like I went to like the free seminars, like Than Merrill will run like a free seminar. You show up for a day. They give you like one valuable piece of information. Mm-hmm. And then they just try to sell you on a bunch of coursework, but they pack yeah. in the room. We, I th- we went to one of those, like it had to have been when we were like 18 years old and, and it, cause they try to sell you a course, right. Or something like that during, like during yeah. that time, they give you a free day and then they sell you a course or something like that. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Like they, they pack you into a room with like a bunch of other people. Like they ask a bunch of like very <laughs> obvious questions. Like, are you tired of being poor? And everybody's like, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. you want more money? And, like, I remember yeah. that. and then like at the end of it, they're like, well, for only like your left arm, you can, you know, learn how to do this for us for free. Uh, yeah. Um, but then I, I ended up, uh, like doing some like gig work off of Craigslist for a guy that was like a real estate investor. And I was just like, yo, if this guy can do it, I can do it. And that was like the trigger for me where I had like built up the knowledge prior, but like, I finally met somebody that was like really relatable to me that had rental properties, like not someone online that I was like overly like amazed or impressed with, like not somebody's final story. Or like chapter 15 of their book, you know, where, where they got a, a big portfolio and they're doing it full time. But like this guy was going to grad school, working a regular job and doing real estate. And I was like, there's no reason I can't have a rental. Within two months, I had my first rental property from that. I then picked wow. up two more single family homes. Um, that semester of law school, at the end of the semester, I dropped out of law school. And I got a job in apartment communities to build on my knowledge. And I just kept going from there. So that's interesting. Um, at that time, where you purchased your first rental, uh, were you working or were you just in college? No, I was just in school. Um, so I was, yeah. uh, you know, I was with my wife at the time. She was working, but the way we bought the property was, you know, part of the reason why I've gravitated towards, you know, Cleveland so much is Cleveland is a very affordable market to invest in. And mm. so the first duplex I bought was thirty-two thousand dollars. I just used personal loans and lines of credit like to buy that. Um, so it was a cash deal, you know, but it like the, the cash was borrowed, like it came from somewhere else. And that's kind of a strategy that like I kind of replicated as I, I built, you know, the next couple houses I got with owner financing, a personal loan to put the down payment on a seller finance deal to get two more single family homes. Um, and then it just kind of kept going from there. Right. Oh, so wow. you also use creative strategies um, to acquire your properties. It wasn't just cash. I've never used a, I've never used a bank. Thirty three yeah. doors. I've never used a bank. Is there a reason why you never use the bank? Is there like like because you that's the tip like when I think yeah. of real estate investing in the more in the more like the normal way is what they say right like the people just go to banks try to get financing, and and they that's just how it goes usually like what what do you why didn't you go that route initially? Yeah. So the first like. Banks are great, and I might have done it the hard way, to be honest with you, as far as like scaling a real estate portfolio. But I was solving a problem that exists when you go after cheap markets. And that's that like banks don't want to touch it. You know, like Cleveland's starting to see a lot of appreciation, so that might change in the next year. But like if you go to most like, you know, like privatemoney.com and a lot of these like big guys that will like lend on real estate and you pitch them Cleveland real estate, like they'll tell you no because the values aren't high enough. Like they only want to write a loan for 75 grand or higher. So like 
how do you buy a $32,000 duplex if you have no cash and you can't get financing on it? You know, so I'm going into poor C-class neighborhoods. I'm buying properties. You know, the, the flip side is those, they, they cash flow, you know, fantastically. Um, like I still own that first duplex today. Like Cleveland's experienced appreciation. It's been six years. That house, I'm like an MLS value is about 80 grand. And I make about six fifty seven hundred dollars a month in cash flow. Wow. So like it's it's a solid like piece of my portfolio. Like I'm not unhappy with it. But even today, six years later, even after that appreciation, it's like barely financeable. So that 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 makes it difficult. And so I needed you know different ways or different strategies to do that. Like if I was gonna go after cheap houses in poor neighborhoods, you gotta get creative, you gotta have a lot of lots of cash, whether that's your own or, or private money. So uh, even tracking back before that first property, when you left law school, how did your parents take that? <laughs> like when you, when you first <laughs> left, like what was that like? Like because that's a big jump, that's a big commitment to real estate. Like, yeah. like leaving something, like what would be a, like a great career uh, to to do real estate? Yeah. So, well, at the time I left law school, I had three properties, so I would have had two single family homes in this duplex at this point. And so, like in the beginning, it was like it was pretty supportive because like I, I had some success, but yeah. like turnkey real estate rarely means like problem free real estate. You know, like a lot of times if you're buying something that's turnkey, what I found is that like somebody cut a corner somewhere and the guy that's buying a turnkey now has to fix it. So that first duplex I bought, it's turnkey. Okay. Two tenants live inside of it. Within the first 90 days I had to evict one of the tenants and the water lines that someone just ran the ceiling upstairs in the bathroom started leaking. So now I had to redo the whole bathroom ceiling plus fix the water lines. So like the, one of the single family homes I bought had like a baseball size hole under the dirt in the main stack, like sewer stack. So like over time, what I realized is as this person like used the bathroom and water ran out, like dirt was getting in their basement. Cause oh, like, they had like a partial basement, partial crawl space. So like the stack goes down the crawl space. It's got a hole in it. The dirt runs out the crawl space into the basement. So like those were relatively speaking difficult things to yeah. like repair and relatively like large problems compared to like some other stuff. So when those problems started to happen, like the faith kind of decreased, you know, cause like now it was like, oh, well, it's nice that like you're a young kid and you picked up some real estate, but like now you have problems, like this clearly isn't a good long-term plan. And so at that point, um, I relied heavily on like maintenance guys that I was, you know, working with, um, employing at properties. Um, uh, my wife's family is, is, is contractors watched a ton of YouTube, but that's, I started like massively bulking up my capacity and ability to fix things which then also made these deals work better you know now i could buy cheap properties fix them on myself like know the problems that were wrong with it buy the next one right and kind of keep going and growing so knowing what you know now um would you have gone after those properties uh, when you started uh maybe maybe because of your situation where you were that was really your only option but um just long-term, like do those properties, did those properties make sense for you? Yeah. So I think like, would I still do it? Yes. But should everybody do it? Certainly not. Like 
And I think the difference is, is like, what's the most important thing to you when you're chasing or when you're going after real estate? Like if you're attracted to the cash flow, you're not going to do better than cheap houses in the Midwest that you can have and have in cash and are going to um, like just pay you way more than a hundred or two hundred dollars a month. Like would be the average, right? Earning three, four, five hundred dollars a door, it's just going to get you to your like financial freedom numbers faster. You need less houses, mm-hmm. you can get to it quicker. But you know you don't see a lot of appreciation. Right in a six-year time period, saying that you went from 30 to 80 is not a big number, especially in today's housing market. Right? I mean, people mm-hmm. are seeing that kind of growth sometimes in like an 18-month time period. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you want, and the next piece is like, I get virtually no depreciation. You know, you take a $30,000 house, you divide that by yeah. 26,000 years. You know what I mean? Like, so you're not really getting a lot of tax. <laughs> you're not getting a lot of tax benefits. You're not getting a lot yeah, of depreciation. Yeah, yeah. But it helps you be able to like leave your nine to five job, like and if that's what you're after, I don't think there's a better like class of real estate to get you there and get you there quicker, because otherwise you're gonna you're gonna burn, right? To like grow a real estate portfolio quickly, you know, where you're, you're buying a property, yeah. um, we usually with hard money, you're renting, you're fixing it up, you're renting it out, you're refinancing it, you're repeating, but like when you do that, you kill your cash flow down to like 150, 200 dollars a month. Well, that means you need to have two houses for every one of these cheaper houses that you have. So, like, if you're chasing cash flow, like, you're giving up cash flow for growth. And you don't necessarily have to do that, you know, with these, these properties because you buy the whole house for the price of down payments, you know, in a lot of other areas of the country. Yeah, so There's, I guess it's all a matter of what your goals are, and, and that'll kind of drive where you want to be. So, like, if you do want to get out of your job quicker and grow... Uh, or like focus on your real estate, that might be the best option because you can leave in a year or two and then focus 100% of your efforts in there to grow exponentially. Um, as as if you're going a little bit slower paced and um, longer term, maybe the higher priced assets who, which will appreciate uh, much quicker are, are the best options for that. Um, I guess just the balance and you can't really predict the future either. So um, that cash flow is nice. <laughs> exactly. And I mean, I've added to my portfolio some, you know, a couple B class rental properties as well. Right. So it becomes more of like a balance as you grow. But if you're saying like, you know, where are you starting? What's best for you? Like, what are you initially chasing? Cause I guarantee you like anything you start, you get into it and then like, you change your mind, you get a different goal, you have a different idea, mm-hmm. you know, a different strategy evolves, right? So like, you're not necessarily like the first strategy you pick to start with isn't going to be necessarily the last strategy you end with, or even what you're using like two years down the road. So, so yeah. what are some of the strategies you're utilizing today? Is it, are you still buying long-term rentals? Yeah, I'm, I'm buying long-term rentals, uh, moved a little bit into, you know, some commercial buildings. So I got a mixed-use building. It's three storefronts and eight apartments above it. Um, I got a little six-unit apartment community that I still have to rehab. It's been sitting for a minute, but uh, <laughs> um, but I mean, I I found something that that works for me, and I've kind of like leaned into it. You know, I experimented with Airbnb for a minute. I got out of it. Um, you know, so I I have a couple Section Eight rentals 
that that are thrown in that mix too. But I mean, other than that, it's it's basically long term rentals, high cash flow, you know, lower appreciation. You know, that's kind of my my bread and butter and what I like and what what works for me. So. So what was the reason why you stopped doing short term rentals? Because that seems attractive. Because uh, yeah. looking into short term rentals, I know Phil is interested as well. Um, it it just like it generates a different level of cash flow if you're able to do it efficiently. Um, yes. but like, like theoretically, uh, but like <laughs> what, what was something that turned you off to it? <laughs> so my, it might come for me guys. My, my complaint is not with short term rentals is with Airbnb <laughs> as a company. Like I just, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, they might come for me, but no, like I, I think Airbnb is new and growing and I don't think when you're inside and as a host, they've necessarily like figured all their stuff out yet like their airbnb they do have a tough job like they got guests giving them pictures if there's a problem you got hosts giving them pictures they problem they got an arbitrary set of rules and they're trying to make a decision on it and like do it quickly because like somebody's trying to do housing but like oftentimes airbnb has a problem or like airbnb makes uh, like a what i would call like a very rash decision and like demands hosts respond immediately. But then like you reach out to Airbnb and they're like six weeks later, they get back to you. And yeah. so like, for me, it just like that interaction just like didn't work. And maybe Verbo or some of the other companies would be, you know, different. Like I, I wasn't on those platforms, but for me, like the response time demand on a host versus then the same level of communication courtesy given back just wasn't there. And you know, since I'm not in a vacation city, like I know you guys love Cleveland weather. Uh, you know, <laughs> we, just had, we just had snow in April. Uh, but, but yeah, we had snow too last week in New Jersey. Yeah. So uh, we had a little bit. Yeah, it's not too different. I mean, the weather might be a little different, but <laughs> <laughs> Cleveland's not a vacation based city. Like, so people are not, you know, people are coming because they, they generally like need something. So I was earning like maybe about 30% more you know, on, on Airbnb as I would be opposed to renting that long-term and having to clean it, having to deal with Airbnb and like all those extra hours that went into it just kind of made it to the point where it was like that extra 30% like was distracting, not necessarily like worth it. You know, it wasn't like two, three, four times, you know, what you see some people post on Instagram, um, which doesn't mean that's fake. That's just not where I live. It's just not the real estate yeah. I had. It just, it didn't work for me. So like oh, you were talking about the the um, that mix, I'm I'm curious to know how like uh you first you got into that mixed use property, Be and also how do you exactly get businesses to rent your property? Like what is like the process of you even getting them in there? And like you had you said you had six or eight units above that, like like how do you deal with all these units? Like it seems that you have a, like a lot of units. How do you deal with that? The buying of that building is kind of cool because. It was about a time when I was still living in Columbus, but I wanted to move back to Cleveland. Okay, like we were expecting our, our second kid. Me and my wife were both from Cleveland, wanted to be close to the family, move back. Um, and I was thinking about selling the rentals I'd picked up in Columbus, but I wasn't sure. And I got a like a wholesale uh, email like for this building. And I like I looked at the building for a second, I looked at the email, I looked at the address. I was like, I know that building. I drive past that building every single day because I own a building like a good football throw like down the street from it. And I was like, I've always wanted to own that building. Like I have to have it. So I like put up the stuff for sale from Columbus. 
I'm trying to get lenders to go through and um, you know help me purchase the, the building. But I'm running into problems because I got three commercial units. And so most of the lender requirements only wanted two units, not three. And then the building only had four residential tenants. So that means it had four vacant tenants and three vacant commercial. So like I can't base off building financials. So they run an appraisal in a C neighborhood for a building that's like 85% renovated versus like stuff that's completely gutted. So like my appraisal comes in $100,000 under, like the purchase contract price of this deal. So I was like, yeah, that's shot, that's done. That's not gonna happen. <laughs> so the seller ended up asking the title company to talk to me and agreeing to seller finance the building. So I bought the building in the, in the meantime of doing this, I had sold the Columbus rentals. Like I had those within a 1031 exchange pot. So I then transferred the money from those rentals on a 1031 exchange to the seller. The seller carried the note back on a 10 year period to, and to then give me the building. So now that now I have the building, I renovate the four residential units that were vacant. I get those leased out, I get tenants in them. Um, I started on the storefronts. I have, you know, the ones the ones done, the runs one is rented to a party planner. Um, the other one I'm leasing right now, the third one I really want to make a barbershop, like a salon. Um, mm -hmm. so I'll kind of renovate that this summer kind of with that in mind. So but I think to answer your question, I know there's a lot there we can backtrack a second, but like how do you find those tenants? It's it's I'm not really using any different strategies than I would if you were looking for a residential tenant. Put an ad on Craigslist, you put an ad on Facebook Marketplace. Uh, you put a red sign in the the window of the business. Um, I've reached out to a couple of the, you know, the the local like business leaders in the zip code, and, and said like, hey, look, councilman, if if you're looking for somebody, I have this available. You know, hey, organization, hey, organization, you know, things like that to see who's out there. Um, I mean, you can still run a, a background and credit check on the owner of the business. Can run a credit check on like the actual business if they have business credit, but you know, given the type of building I have and what I'm here, I'm getting, you know, like a, a, a less sophisticated business tenant. Like I'm not getting like a Walgreens, like to yeah. put it that way, right? Like I'm getting more of like that small business owner. So a lot of it's just, you know, for me, it's more so like, let me look at your, like, let me look at your financial data. Right? Like, let me see your business tax returns. You don't want me showing me your personal? Like, that's okay. Let me see your business tax returns. Like you wrote everything off. Last year, well, you probably can't lease this building, right? Because your expenses are too high. Yeah. And so that's then the challenge of being a small business. You don't want to pay any taxes. So you're writing everything off, but then you're trying to lend and lease a storefront, yeah. but it looks like you have no money. Um, so, you that's know. So interesting. Yeah. And, it, and if someone came forward and they were like, hey, look, like I do make a lot of, like I, my business is doing okay, but like I also have this job. You could have both of them sign the lease, you know, so you write the business to, you know, X party planning and John Smith or whatever, right? So that yeah. way, like they're they're both on the 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 lease, both guaranteed. You can use both of their income to kind of qualify them. Yeah. So yeah, that's really interesting. So now that you have some experience with the mixed use, uh, what are some pros and cons in uh, having like the storefronts as compared to just residential units? Yeah. So like right off the jump is that. You know, like if you still consider it an 11 unit building, like the amount that you receive in rent for those storefronts is significantly higher than you do on the residential apartments. So like in theory, if I just had an eight residential apartment building, the total monthly rent 
would be lower because the storefronts rent for more per square foot um, than like the residential buildings do. Um, you get a chance to build a, uh, a little more of a community, you know, provide value to those residents. You know, and that's kind of what I'm thinking in mind, right? When I'm saying the last one, like, hey, I want to make this into, you know, a barbershop, a salon, something like that, right? Like, I'm not going to run that. I have no idea how to run a barbershop. But, like, if I renovate and I put the right stuff in there, somebody else will see the vision and they'll come in and do that. Well, now, in theory, you can just walk right downstairs, get your nails done, you know, get your hair, like, get your hair, your hair cut, whatever, right? Like, that, that gives a chance to provide value to those residents. Um, you know, downsides, they, they can be, they can be loud. They can take the parking for the residents, you know, like the, mm-hmm. the business can be open, you know, later maybe than somebody, than somebody wants. Um, but I mean, o- overall, like, I think it's, I think it's a good fit. I think it's a unique style. And I also think it's kind of like the, the current in trend, you know, like, especially like, you know, people like that kind of big city feel, right. Where you have stores on the bottom and apartments up top. And that's, that's kind of been a trend as people move to more urban areas. And so this neighborhood that I'm, that I'm, in, that I'm in at the moment um, and where this building is and where a lot of my real estate is, it's, it's kind of turning over. It's really big development in the area. A lot of gentrification is going on. So, you know, as that changes, it, it gives a chance to have, you know, solid businesses underneath that then help attract tenants above it, you know, and, and vice versa. I, le- I really like something that you said there that um, you invested in those store or in that property because it's going to build a little bit more of a community. It seems like you're not just investing for returns. You're also in- investing with intentions of doing good or because um, you have just values of your own that you want to fulfill. Um, and then I guess going back, so what are some goals that you started out with uh, when you initially started investing and how, where are you now and if you've achieved them what are new goals that you're you're setting for yourself yeah so like 30 units like that was the goal right like from the book that just mathematically made so much sense to me it just became like such like you know such oh i'll just go get 30 units right like how, how hard can that be so um <laughs> i'm at you know i'm at 32, 33, somewhere in there, you know, uh, oh, nice. r- right now. So I, I, I passed that. I have a lot of vacancy at the moment though. You know, the, the, like I said, I got a six unit building that's completely vacant. I haven't started rehabbing that. Like some of the, the two of those storefronts are still unrenovated. So like I have a lot of vacancy. So like that kills the portfolio's performance, but I think even more so mathematically is there was one part that wasn't disclosed in that 30 units. And that was like, you had to take care of those 30 units for the most part, you know, because like if you have mortgages and now you're contracting everything out, like that cash flow number gets real, real, real small, right? Like if you contract everything out and you get down to like average $200 a door number, I mean, that's not bad, but that's, you know, 30 times two, 200, that's. Oh man, you guys are gonna test my math without a calculator. Yeah, fifteen. Sorry, thank you. Fifteen, fifteen hundred a month. You know, oh, like sh- you're not gonna live on that anymore. So mm-hmm. like you have to be the one that's fixing and taking care of these buildings. And so I think for me, like the the, the yeah. goal is, I need to add about another 10, 15 units to my portfolio. 
you know, get, get to a point where I have about 45 to 50 units with a good chunk of them being paid off to then kick that cash flow number up. Um, yeah. And I think... I was actually 6,000. I was right. <laughs> oh, shoot. Yeah. Wait, so yeah. off. Yeah. I so sounded... I, mean, I, yeah, I was like, oh, Because it was 30. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Six, six, yeah 1,500 way off. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, we're supposed we're supposed to be like uh engineers and freaking uh real estate people and we you we don't freaking know well, yeah, we got uh, half a, half a lawyer here we can't yeah. <laughs> i'm just kidding um but yeah. i i think uh i mean six thousand is not bad like, like six thousand really isn't like six thousand is a very livable income in most areas of the country particularly like in cleveland but I think the next thing you have to like really ask yourself is like 30 units has to be 30 units that are occupied or that number starts to decrease. Like you can't account for some major repairs. Like if a roof needs to be done, you know, some, some larger planning items, like suddenly that cash flow number like can deplete, right? Like if 30 is the exact number, you don't have any cushion. And yeah. so um, like, I, I think for me, I want to add and get to about 45 to 50 units, which like right now my average rents about like just over 800. So like when I do the math, that should mean if, if I was able to basically just like, you know, keep half, that'd be about 250 annually, about 200 annually. Um, so putting that like, and then that's at least right now is I'm saying that's kind of like all the real estate that I want. Because I don't want to necessarily like be really one like business centric. Like I don't want to have like all my eggs in just real estate. So like I, I mentioned briefly that like I just purchased a, a dump trailer. Like I'd like to get multiples of those. Like I'd like to have that be like a genuine business, not just a tool of my real estate business where those really are being rented out. There's a full-time driver driving those around. Um, yeah. I'd like to be able to kind of grow that. I'd also then really like to be able to focus on just like providing a really amazing tenant experience. So I'd like to go by, there's Sandusky, Ohio at Cedar Point. It's about an hour from Cleveland. It's right on the mm -hmm. lake. I'd like to buy, uh, you know, like a, a larger property that's there, five bedrooms, two bathrooms, and basically set, cried like, good tenant criteria so like you haven't been late on your rent your unit's taken care yeah. of if if you do all of this you pick a week and it's just free like between basically the month of november you pick the next year you know in a week and that's free i'd like to be able to do that with like a couple other places throughout the country too like i just think that would be a cool way for my family would always have a vacation spot and a very unique experience that like other landlords aren't offering. And as well, like a way to really give back to, like I invest in poor C-class neighborhoods. Like I have tenants that are, you know, single parents with four kids. Like they're not paying for a single family home, like on a lake for a week. Like yeah. they wouldn't have, they like I, I now can make trips experiences for those kids, those families, and those memories, like dramatically more affordable, and um, and I I just think that's a unique thing, a cool way to do it and build a different experience, and also like I struggle a lot of times with 
new tenants, like convincing them I'm not a crappy slumlord landlord. Mm -hmm. Like that yeah. if something's broken, like I will come and fix it. You, you don't have to call me a thousand times and yell at me on the phone. Right. Like, because unfortunately, like, yeah, like that, that type of population, that group of population, like is vulnerable to, I need a place to live and bad housing is better than homelessness and no housing. And so like, I, I think I have a way to yeah. change that at least for a small group of people. And I'd rather be small, have high cash flow and like just be able to do really cool things than always focus on grow scaling and, you know, have this massive business with a bunch of employees that I always have to manage, hire, retrain, you know, pick your headaches. At least right now, these are the headaches that I want to pick. That's so cool, man. That's so sick that you're willing to do that for your community. And I don't know, like it's, it's, it's like you gotta have, you gotta have morals in a game where money is involved. Like, like, and it seems like you do have those morals and, like I don't know, that was a really cool way to like, to 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 like say that. Listen, I don't I don't have only money in mind. I have people in mind, and that was really cool. Uh, yeah. So I think uh that's that's I think that's good. But like, before we end the podcast, we like to do three questions at the end. That uh, one personal, one professional, one random. So Phil, if you don't mind taking the first one. Uh, okay. So yeah, the first uh, personal question is, um, what's a habit or trait you're working on um, to get better in? I'm really trying to do like a better job of like consistently coming home for dinner. So like I like I normally don't eat lunch during the day. And like the reason I don't eat lunch is like I don't want to stop. Like I would rather get on a job site and lay like all the flooring in one day, rip out all the cabinet, like do everything, right? Like if I take it out, it's got to be put back. Well, if you've ever tried fixing something yourself, like, especially in older homes where things are sometimes, like, rigged up kind of weird, you know, like, you quickly run into a problem. And now you have 11 trips to Home yeah. Depot and, like, that easy two-hour job <laughs> took six, you know? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. like, oh I can do a bad job of being, like, oh, five more minutes, five more minutes, and then five more minutes is really, like, you know, like, three hours. And then it's, like, 6.30, like, I'm rushing home and that depletes time that like I get with my kids that puts stress on my wife. Cause now, you know, like she's had all day with them all dinner. I'm running home, like just doing bath time and then that's it. So like trying to do a better job of just like making sure it's like, I cut my work day off. Like this project will still be here tomorrow. Like this will still be here tomorrow. It's okay. Um, and then just get home. Yeah. So setting those boundaries, right? Yeah. Yeah. If you don't, something yeah. will always be cool. Up. Uh, and uh, next one is one professional. You kind of answered this before, but uh, even if it's not super professional, if it's even like uh, in addition to what you just said, it's like, where do you see yourself professionally in five to 10 years? I see myself, I see myself at the top of a four branch business, meaning that I want to have a driver for the trailers. I want to have like a maintenance supervisor, with a maintenance team that does like the day to day work within the properties. I want to have someone that does acquisitions, uh, meaning that like they're looking to uh, follow up on leads for either like a good property to like you know be purchased or changed into wholesale out, and then I want to have someone that kind of handles the tenant conversations, the leases, up, the lease up, you know, focuses heavily on occupancy, um, and then I kind of want to oversee and manage that. 
and have my you know my work day relatively speaking be compressed to three or four hours that I can kind of do every day so that way I can have kids go to school be there when kids get back kind of handle the stuff in the oh middle. yeah and you think that's like a way to do that like the, the, one of the ways to do that is to hire right like you have to get good people like that's yeah, probably the I'm, first thing in mind right a hundred percent so I mean like I I am looking to hire um, people now you know I got a couple guys that help me with the maintenance side but you know, absolutely. Each one of those, like I recently just sat down and built like a whole organization chart. Like I planned it out and said like, okay, if this is the per like if I'm hiring one person that's going to be a, a driver for trailers, these are the traits they have to have. This is how mm -hmm. ideally they get compensated income wise. Okay. A maintenance supervisor, this is their skill set versus a maintenance tech's skill set. Okay. Like this is compensation court. Like and did kind of each one of those. So I can keep that in mind and also like help me define, you know, like my roles because I'm wearing a lot of those hats right now, right? And so it's like, okay, as I look to bring in someone, as I look to transition them, you know, these are the the traits I need to identify, kind of those people need to go into it, um, you know, but at the end of the day, it's still it's, it's still a very small team. You know, you'd, you'd be looking at max six positions. You know, at max, you have kind of six people working with Slash for you. Very cool. So, Phil, you want to get the last one? Yep. Uh, last one is a random question, and this one is, could you give us your biggest win and your biggest, I don't like to say loss, but learning lesson? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, the, my biggest win has to be, like, that 11-unit building. You know, like, if at the time, like, if you were, you know, if you were one of the people that, like, like I call when I get excited about something, you know, like one of my, my best friends, I think I told all of them 11, 11 times, <laughs> this deal is dead, it's on, it's dead, it's on, it's dead. And I like, it was just, it was changing. I was negotiating through it. And, you know, like architecturally, it's just like a cool building. There's only like six of them, eight of them in the neighborhood. So like, it just like, I don't, I don't ever plan on selling that that, that building. Like, even if I got out of real estate, it's like, I just feel like I'd have to keep that building. Like, mm -hmm. I just like and cherish that building. <laughs> nice. Um, you know, I think, I think my biggest loss, um, like it's got to be all of my first attempts at like at wholesaling. So like, I guess I've kind of like, we didn't talk about it, but like when I when I was like first kind of building the real estate portfolio, like I definitely had like, this is cool and the investor's doing this, this is cool and this and investor's doing this, right? So I would like try to jump into a bunch of stuff. And like wholesaling is really time consuming. Like if you've never tried it, like like you, you either have to be, spend hours cold calling, you have to spend hours driving neighborhoods, you have to spend hours producing mailers, like you have to follow up with people, you have to be able to take the phone calls, return the text messages, go walk the house, and then repeat that cycle with a buyer. And so, like, you can make a lot of money, but it's very time-consuming. And, like, I would do all of those things with, like, none of the time required to ever do them successfully. And so, mm -hmm. I, and in return, like, I would waste hours from, like, being a better real estate investor with something like I was having success in to, you know, like, go try to wholesale. And, and I think the other piece is, is, like, I think a lot of people jump into wholesale because they see the big check. And they see that as the reason of like, you know, like I don't have any money. I don't have any experience. So like, I'm going to go learn. And it's not that you can't do that, but 
like I also had no money, no skills, and no experience, and I found ways to start to, to buy properties, right? Like there are ways to do it. And that Cleveland house that I bought, that first one, I was living in Columbus. So I was, you know, in the same state, but I was still two hours away. It's not like I was just going to drive there and fix something myself per se, right? So like it doesn't have to be in your same area. Like there's ways you can do it. And I think most people that start out wholesaling, like they have no idea how to estimate rehab. Like it's very easy to tell someone that's like pretty new in real estate if you've been around for a couple of years. You know, like you misuse lingos, you misuse words. And so I think it's like wholesaling is all about trust. Like I'm trying to get the seller to trust me that they'll, like I am the cash buyer or I can bring them a cash buyer. And I'm trying to get the cash buyer convinced that this deal will close and it's the numbers, the numbers on it work and make sense. And that's why I kind of deserve this fee. And I think if you first start out doing that, it can be very hard to get all those pieces right. And so it, to me, it almost makes more sense to start with a different area of real estate. You know, buy a wholesale deal that works, learn to run it as a rental, learn what things cost to fix them up, meet other investors. And as you do that, it's much easier to go back and wholesale because now you've kind of built those relationships and, and you can look at it from, from that side, having been in it. Very cool, man. Yeah. So yeah, I think that wraps it up, man. You, you, you really gave us a bunch of knowledge here. Like, like, like I think that we're going to be able to clip a bunch of these things and put them up because like you, like your experience is very different, unique. And, and, uh, and I think you learned a lot like from all the, the last few years and we're, we're going to learn from you as well. So thank you again for being on. Like it was a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. It was fun. Thanks yeah. for having me, guys. Yeah. If you don't mind uh, uh, giving out your social medias and, and whatever you want to plug real quick, just in case anybody wants to follow you or see what you're doing. Yeah. I mean, if, if you want to follow, if anyone wants to follow me on Instagram, uh, they can. It's at Ian, I-A-N, the last, first part of my last name, T-V-A-R-D. So E-N-T-V-A-R-D. Um, I post up there quasi-regularly. Um, yeah, I've been following you I've been following <laughs> you on Instagram and I see that you've been putting like the day-to-day -day renovations and like all the stuff that you've been doing so it's a uh, it's actually kind of a fun follow like you on Instagram oh thank you yeah it's sometimes yeah. weird people be like hey I love your content I'm like man it's just Wednesday you know it's not my it's not my content <laughs> <laughs> it's just what I did today like I didn't sit in like my shower and think like what's gonna give me a bunch of like likes or views it's just like no, I, I busted <laughs> yeah. out this kitchen today like here you go I walked this house here you go so um, <laughs> Yeah, but you know, people like that. People like to see like what like what's going on, like what's before, what's after, like what exactly did you do? Like it's 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 fun. Yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah. Fun, it's fun to make it. It's cool to meet other people that are doing the same thing too. You know, like that that was a big push, like for me to get started. Right, was meeting that guy, and I was like, hey, you're a real human. Um, yeah. But but you know, the second piece is then is like, you know, and then I I did it by myself for like a very long period of time. So it's been nice to kind of meet and make other friends, even if they don't live in the same area, but across the country that are, you know, doing it and have the same interests. And you know, houses are still houses, whether they're yeah. in New Jersey or Cleveland. So they, they got a lot of commonalities. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, man. It was, a, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much again for coming on. And, uh, and yeah, hopefully we'll talk soon. I'd like to have you on again in the future to talk about our new things and your new things as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, guys. Thanks. See you, man.
Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed the show. If you like the show, please leave us a review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And if you're watching us on YouTube, hit that like button, leave us a comment, and subscribe to our channel. You can also follow us on Instagram at CuriousInvestFI. All this helps support our podcast. Ciao! Ciao!